You're listening to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This program is part of an ongoing speaker series in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is Owen Shiflett. He's the Vice President of Development for the streaming platforms Sundance Now and Shudder. Shiflett worked for eight years as part of the development team for AMC Networks. He managed creative elements for shows including Mad Men, Hell on Wheels, and Halt and Catch Fire, as well as helping develop hits like Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. Shiflett also worked as a producer with Universal Television. In today's conversation, Shiflett discusses the role of network executives in working with creative talent, and he also describes programming for new online streaming platforms and how they fit into the evolving media business. He spoke on April 27th, 2017 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Welcome everyone to our last installment of Media Industries Conversations for the year. I'm Elisa Perrin, and I'm thrilled to welcome Owen Shiflett. Uh, today I want to tell you a little bit about him, but first uh, I want to thank my colleague, Cindy McCreary, for her assistance in organizing these events, as well as our support staff, Laura Felshow, Tim Piper, Kyle Rather, and Eric Apollo. I also want to thank uh, several people in the RTF department, in particular our chair, Paul Steckler, uh, our communication and programs coordinator, Alana Wakeman, and the Moody College of Communication for their support, especially Dean Bernhardt and Assistant Dean Mike Wilson. Uh, and we will be resuming these again in the fall when they are part of a, a Business of Hollywood course that I will be teaching. So uh, be sure to follow us. The Twitter feed will pop up there at some point. RTFMIC to keep up with announcements and also uh, postings of podcasts can be tracked down on our website in, for previous installments as well as upcoming installments. So now let me tell you a little bit about our guests today and what we're going to talk about. Uh, very thrilled to have another RTF graduate here, yay. Uh, and he's a, he has an accomplished career already in development uh, and as an executive across film, television, and digital media forms. Uh, his career accomplishments include serving as a director of development at AMC Network, where he supervised creative elements for such shows that we all might know, like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. So I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about there. Uh, also served as an executive producer with Universal Television and Parks McDonald, and currently is head of AMC Network's original series division of its streaming services Shudder and Sundance Now. So hopefully today we'll hear a little bit about his career trajectory from his time at RTF to the present, his roles and responsibilities as an executive, uh, and what is involved in developing and supervising content across platforms, views on current state of the media industries, and we'll finish up with some advice and a Q&A period for those of you who want to ask specific questions. So with that, join me in welcoming Owen Shiflett. So I guess let's just start with, if you want to tell us a little bit about how you figured out what you wanted to do and sort of the first steps to accomplishing that even out of RTF. Sure. Yeah, so um, I was, uh, I started at UT in the fall of 99 and uh, I left UT in the spring of 03, but didn't get that last credit until 04. So I'm so bummed whenever I see that 04 come up, I'm like, good God, if I had just done that stinking credit. Um, uh, so I was um, 
uh, yeah, so I was a, a student here and uh, was initially a business student and uh, always had my eye on trying to work in the entertainment business. And But I got, you know, sidetracked by my parents' wishes for me to be a sensible, you know, human being, an adult, and going and getting a business degree. And then I took the accounting class and I said, this is not for me. I cannot do this. And so I uh, switched. Uh, it took me a couple semesters, but I got into the film program, uh, which I was very excited about. And um, But really, my education started when I got my first internship uh, at uh, Detour Film Productions uh, here in town. And that was my entry point into the entertainment business in total. And that was uh, exciting for me to learn the hands-on trade of what it means to actually make something. Um, and then I did that, uh, interned for quite a while, all throughout junior and senior year. And then um, I segued into getting paid for that as a PA um, for a couple years, still living in town. And it was great. I had a lot of fun. And then I just, um, at a certain point, felt like, oh, I could keep doing this or I could reach for something bigger. And that's when, in the, in 05, I moved, uh, summer of 05, I moved to L.A. And, um, and that's when I got um, a job in the mailroom of CA, which was a wonderful learning experience. I'm sure, I think other people have talked about in here how this, like the agency mailrooms are really like graduate school for those who want to be in the entertainment business. It's where you meet a lot of people who you'll be friends with the entire time. Everybody's there for the same reason, so uh, it is a, the spirit of competition is there, but it's also a great time to meet people who are just trying to get their script read or their short film seen. Um, and uh, I was no different. I, was, I thought I was going to be a writer, which was interesting. Um, and uh, I thought... After nine months in the CA mailroom, oh, well, I got out of the mailroom and I was on a desk. It was like you start out in the mailroom and you do all the terrible work like going and buying fruit and uh, shucking mail and doing all the stuff that's like somebody that, doesn't, that hasn't gone to school can do and you get really jaded. But then, you know, then once you get up on a desk with an agent, you get to know their business really well. And I was fortunate enough to be on the desk of an agent who was covering a terrible business at the time. And the agent hated it, wishes he didn't have to do it. But it was cable television. And cable television sucked at that point, And they weren't interested in doing any of it. So um, I got to learn a lot by throwing in myself. And, um, and then uh, the cable television opportunity opened up and I was like oh man I just want to get out of the agency and do something a little bit more specific I sat down with a guy right I had many interviews where I was trying to get a job in cable and because that's who the people I was talking to were and there were uh, I'd sat down with so many people and I was saying what I thought they wanted to hear in as much as hey what shows are you interested in what kind of things do you think uh, you know we should be doing as a cable network, and in all those meetings, I would say the most popular shows of the day. I would be like, oh, I watch uh, Desperate Housewives and Lost and Grey's Anatomy, and you know, thinking that those were the right answers because they're the most popular. And then I met with a guy um, for, this, for the job I ended up getting, and he asked me what my favorite show was, and I was like, oh, man, I'll just be honest with you. I, just, I really like Twin Peaks, but I don't think anybody else even likes that show here. And he was like, well, but I do. And so, and that, that job ended up being uh, AMC, which was a really good position right at the right time. 
It was pre-Mad Men, pre-Breaking Bad. They had made a big Western miniseries with Robert Duvall that I got to be a part of, and um, but then the die was cast from there. That's great. So how did, what was your initial role or how did you sort of move through the AMC trajectory? Because obviously you were there at such a great moment for their original programming. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was a great moment. Um, it was, um, you know, the thing is, is that um, I think especially in my side of the entertainment business, which is the executive side, and it's not, it's not the sexiest side. It's like the, in fact, when I got the job at AMC, and the reason why I wanted to get a job at a cable network was because I was still thinking about myself as a writer who was going to get a job at one of these networks, learn to figure out what they want to buy, and then I'd write that and go sell it, and then that was going to make my career. You know, the thing is, once you get in there, and this is how it was with me at AMC, there was only three development execs at that time, and I was an assistant, and two of them were in New York, only one of them was in L.A. And so by the fact that I was the fourth hire, I was just given a large amount of responsibility, and I, and I literally just kind of threw myself in. And so very quickly... Um, I started learning how to be an executive, and I stopped writing as often. So my base of knowledge and what I got to be good at was the thing I was doing every day for five hours a day and not the thing I was only doing once a week on the weekends. And, um, and so then, you know, I think AMC was just a place where there was so much happening that I grew alongside it. Um, and uh, in, after the second season of Mad Men, um, I got promoted and was given the opportunity to be the primary executive on that show, which was awesome. Um, and, and then I had a script that I cared a lot about um, get made. It was, um, it was a show called Hell on Wheels that I was the exec on through its entire run. And, um, and then, you know, it's the more you do and the more that happens, the more I was able to move up within the company and eventually uh, got to be a director, which is a good, it's a good solid, you know, middle executive role. And um, but given a lot of responsibility and had a lot of uh, had a lot of ways to shape the creative content of everything that came out of there. That's great. So, how many shows would you be involved with at a time, and what would you do as an executive who's working on those shows? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's not really um, uh, the, the set number. I mean, at AMC, it was, it was small because that was what we were doing. But I think that in other places at the time, even other cable networks, there was many more shows that you would be doing. So I had the opportunity, I think it was current executive on at least three shows at one time. And then I was also developing and I carried probably of the projects that were mine that I would consider the ones that I brought in the door and said, you know, took ownership over, um, uh, that was like probably five or six. Okay. So, and when you're a development executive, it's really like you're a diplomat. Like you are the person from the nation of the, uh, of the network who goes to a foreign country and says, these are the things we want. These are the notes we have. And then you have to negotiate all those notes uh, with that foreign country, and hopefully you arrive at something that's both equally uh, equally good. So, like, who are you negotiating with? Like, what are the different... Showrunners. Oh, <laughs> showrunners. 
Yeah, so, uh, I mean, TV business has showrunners as being, like, the primary creative voice, the executive producer over most of the time to the creator, but not always for any kind of um, uh, project. And, you know, it's really their point of view that you want, because I've been in situations where you have showrunners that didn't have a great... Uh, they would just say, oh, yeah, good, let's just do that. And I'd be like, what? No, like, you're supposed to argue with me, and we're supposed to, you know, like, back and forth. Um, but then, but then the other ones are like, it's this way or it's no way, and I'm going to quit if, if, you, if you make me do this. And I had one showrunner one time say to me, like, I am not chase, uh, changing one micron of film. And I was like, we shoot on video. But, <laughs> yeah. So what are the, are you trying to be an intermediary with certain divisions at AMC? Like, what are the divisions that you're trying to well, be diplomatic with? Yeah, I mean, look, the most important one is the creative. Right. Like, and the creative is is intangible as anything in the whole world. My phone, I should have turned that off. Um, but that's like, you know, we are reading things with a subjective eye, and we're saying, look, I think that this is not right for this reason or that reason. And I think we'd like to see that changed, or... This is a character-driven uh, drama about, um, you know, I think uh, Hell on Wheels is a good case where, um, you know, it started out as being a revenge story. And we wanted, um, it's, a, it's a big Western uh, building of the Transcontinental Railroad through charting the real-life story, and there are some real-life historical personalities who were in it. And uh, it started out as a revenge story, somebody who was looking for the person who killed his wife. And... Um, but then the more we did that, we were trying to be serialized um, at a time when there weren't that many serialized shows on TV. And that means where you continue it. There's cliffhangers. You know, you, you have people who are kept on edge and the story goes over time. And um, so we kind of learned that to have a character drama and a revenge drama, they maybe don't go hand in hand. Like, there's only so much character work you can do with a person who's seeking revenge. That's kind of the only thing that they're after. So, you know, that was a negotiation about how much, you know, character drama was in there versus how much of the revenge drama was in there. And that was a... So after you left AMC, you went to uh, Parks McDonald. Is yeah. that correct? And so can you talk a little bit about what you did there and how that might have been different from what you were doing at AMC Network? Yeah, it was, it was the opposite side. So I went, uh, I left in 2014 um, after a good run at AMC. Mad Men was ending. We had finished that, and I felt like it was a good time to try something new. Um, and Walter Parks and Lori McDonald had a very long history in the business, and I was eager to learn from, uh, you know, a different skill sets, and they had a deal at uh, Universal and had uh, a green light, or at least a blinking green light, on a show called The Slap, which was based on an Australian show that I'd seen at my work at AMC, and I loved it, and I thought it was like, oh, this is great. NBC's going to do this? Oh, this is going to be awesome. I want to be a part of this. And so um, I was eager to go over, and um, I got into a deal with a studio where I was a producer working in this little production company for Walter and Lori. And, and then at the same time, I was um, you know, tasked with uh, you know, doing the work on the slap and any other current things that they had going on. And then also bringing in pitches 
and scripts and new material to Universal to eventually sell to NBC. And that was the primary reason um, I was there. And most of the time, when you get into a situation like that, it's like, what is the... Uh, what, what is it that you're looking to do? You're looking to do something that's interesting, that's cool, that's out there, that's not necessarily, you know, been seen before. I, I always found myself bringing things that were meant for cable and not for NBC. So we, uh, we did have a couple successes. I got a pilot made. Um, uh, so, oh, so but back to your question, backing up for a second. So I was, um, you know, when you're a producer, you're going in with the writer and you're sitting across the table from somebody like me in my former job and s pitching and saying, you know, like, this is a great idea, isn't it? Man, how cool. We could really kill this. You know, that's generally what a producer does in a pitch. <laughs> and, uh, but it's like your job to have a relationship with everybody and know that, like, oh, like, Fox doesn't want any medical shows this year, but they definitely want, like, an urban whodunit. So let's find out what that is. Or NBC needs a 9 p.m. cop show. It's like, okay, let's do that. And that tends to be like a very, uh, you know, like baseline. It doesn't sound very interesting because it's not. You're just like, okay, well, what is that? And then you meet with a bunch of writers. You're like, do you have any cop show ideas? Like, yeah, I have a cop show idea. Like, ooh, I don't know. That's like too copy. Or that's too... <laughs> That that's, sounds like Law & Order. It's like, yeah, it's a lot like Law & Order. It's like, they probably won't want that. So you're, you're kind of the first step in filtering up to the person who hired you to do it. Gotcha. So how is it different working for a cable network like AMC versus like an NBC? Because you're saying, yeah. obviously, the pitch is different. Yeah. Yeah, the primary difference is that, you know, at AMC, it was like, we want worlds you've never seen before. That was part of our pitch to writers. It's like... We would love to, you know, take something and, uh, you know, do something interesting and show you something you've never seen before. And we placed a high value on tapping into that, like even genres um, that, that hadn't seen before on TV. One of the scripts that got away that I was never able to make, I always wanted to make a, um, a movie in the spirit of, um, of Le Mans or a Grand Prix, which is like an old, like it's basically like, international F1 racing in the 60s, you know, in, in Europe. I mean, it's a very specialized thing. But, like, that, I got that cleared where I was like, hey, all my bosses at AMC, like, that sounds like a good idea, right? And they're like, yeah, that sounds cool. And so then I could go and meet with writers and say, hey, have you ever seen this movie called Le Mans? It's really good. Or Grand Prix by Frankenheimer. It's really good. Let's do a show like that. And so that was, like, the primary job at AMC. But at NBC... It was just like, yeah, like the more, the less familiar it is, the more they're scared of it as opposed, and I won't say that's always the case because, um, you know, there's some really smart executives over there and the slap was certainly a, a big um, risk for them to take, but the hurdles are a lot higher getting something really interesting and cool off the ground at a place with as many checks and balances as uh, NBC has. So, you know, if you have, like, a really amazing idea and you think it's like, oh, it's never been done on TV before, you're probably not going to be doing it, generally speaking, on a broadcast network. Cool. That, that's a helpful frame to think through. Uh, so now you move from Parks McDonald to AMC's yeah. streaming services. Yeah. Can you talk about what that's like? Because it must be quite a 
different experience? Oh, God. Yeah, or yeah, is it's, it? It's so different. So, uh, I mean, the biggest difference is that, you, that um, I, I bet that not very many people in this room actually watch uh, NBC shows at 8 o'clock right when they air, or, I mean, NBC shows maybe in general, but, you know, you probably aren't, aren't sitting there at the dial, man, I can't wait for this show to come on, and I waited until right now, and I'm not going to get up because I don't want to miss anything, and, man, these commercials could be really cool, and I definitely <laughs> want to watch those, right? And so there's, uh, there's, a certain, uh, there's a certain reorientation in working in something that's going to be based on an app or through a website that you have to think about, whereas, like, at a network, it's just about, like, filling that slot. Um, so uh, the over-the-top network, Sundance Now and Shudder, uh, I would... I would, everybody should check it out. If you think it looks cool, we're a subscription-based company. Every subscription matters. So if you see something you like, this is a plug. <laughs> um, but, the, uh, but both are in the business of, you know, attracting people like yourselves who are cutting the cord, who still want to have access to a deep reservoir of movies and programming and content that, that you, you would find on cable mostly finding cable, but, you know, you're doing it through a little button on your phone or, you know, an app through your Roku or whatever. Um, and, yeah, I mean, look, so, and Sundance Now is um, uh, oriented around the taste of Sundance Film Festival. Um, we are affiliated, kind of, uh, but not really. Um, we are not, we are affiliated more with Sundance TV, but we're also different from that. Uh, and... Uh, you know, the notion, if you go on there, it's foreign films, it's documentaries, it's uh, thoughtful indies. Um, and we're trying very hard to build up a, a, uh, a, a premium brand that is doing interesting things that, you know, you're not going to find it full screen or YouTube Red or something like that. We want to be a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more prestigious than that. Or Vice. <laughs> yeah. And then Shudder, you're also... And so Shudder is also my other uh, assignment, and Shudder is a, uh, a, a genre um, uh, horror-based uh, app, and uh, it is a deep movie library with some classics in there that are very hard to find, uh, and then we also acquire uh, some great horror movies that, um, I mean, I'm sure, I, I probably am not the first to say this, but like, in the business of filmmaking, distributors are a little bit like the broadcast networks of television where they take a lot fewer chances and they go for things that are probably a little bit more easy to predict what's going to happen. And so a lot of really interesting, cool movies fall through the cracks and we end up having access to them and being able to give them to the public, um, which is cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So are you involved with both film and television property development right now, or mainly television series? I'm only doing TV development, but, okay. um, but I mean, we all have, uh, you know, there's, it's a small team, so when I was at Sundance this last year, you know, I covered a couple movies where I, was, I went in and watched, and if I loved them, then we would have made an offer on it, but, you know, but that was only because of personnel. So, um, so yeah, no, only series. I mean, series is really... I mean, not only is TV where it's at. I mean, everybody knows that by now, right, guys? <laughs> but it's also where um, I think that meaningful long-term engagement from a business perspective uh, comes. I mean, I think that you may 
get uh, Netflix because you want to see the new Duplass Brothers movie, but you'll probably stay there because, oh man, they have House of Cards and Iron Fist and a lot of other series that I'm not naming right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Mad Men. Mad, they do have Mad Men. So that was like also, by the way, that was like Netflix and AMC kind of came of age at the same time, and that was incredibly important for, I feel like, I don't know if they would say that, but I'll say it. I think that AMC benefited immensely because the Mad Men's, the people who liked Mad Men could share it with their friends and say like, hey, you should, you should get caught up before this next season comes out, or Breaking Bad especially. Breaking Bad was like extremely low-rated show the first two years, first three years, really. And, but by benefit of it being on Netflix, you know, people discovered the show so that by the time the last season was out, it was the highest rated it had ever been, and it was still a huge number that is only topped by The Walking Dead, Sons of Anarchy, too. But, yeah. yeah. But who's counting? Yeah, who cares? <laughs> so when you're developing or looking for properties for the streaming platforms, like, how yeah. is that different? What are you looking for? Are you thinking differently now? I mean, look, I think that we're always, I mean, in the same way that the old school pitch at AMC, like Worlds You Haven't Seen Before, I think is still like a, a thing that we have to be very mindful of. I think Shudder in particular is an interesting case where, you know, people have a certain expectation when you say, uh, we're, we're trying to do a, uh, a horror-specific brand. It's like, oh, I get it. Like, you know, like any old crazy chainsaw kitten cave massacre you know it's like what that that's probably exists out there somewhere or like killer shrooms from the forest it's like yeah that actually exists somewhere but so like i think that people have a certain expectation of what that is and for us it's about like servicing that and if you love the movie shroom which is about killer shrooms from a forest you you will come to shutter and enjoy other movies that are on there but then also, you might also enjoy some other things which may or maybe a little bit more thoughtful. And I think our notion is that uh, movies like Get Out, which is still very much classified under like a horror or a thriller, still say something about the world around us. And I think that that's part of the DNA mm -hmm. of all the great genre movies out there is that you watch and you're like, whoa, what'd they just say about this or that? And um, I think that that's what we want to do at Shudder. And so... So we're always looking for, I mean, I can read, I've probably read a uh, hundred scripts about a serial killer in a small town and there's secrets in the small town and there's, there's a crazy woman who's, you know, whatever, that's like lives in a log cabin and holds all the secrets or something. I mean, there's like certain tropes that you see over and over and over again and um, uh, with horror specifically and I think for us, it's like, oh, how do we get to a place where it's going to be interesting and set us apart and also say something about the world around us? Cool. Now, I thought when we talked before, you mentioned you'd done some film development or something. You know, I never have. No, oh, but haven't. thank okay. you for saying it in the intro. I appreciate it. Oh, I, I did. You mentioned um, Boyhood. To I me. did work on yeah. Boyhood. I, so, I, so one of the, my first jobs was I worked at, uh, when I worked for Linklater at Detour, I was very fortunate as an intern to work at Boyhood um, in its first year when it was called the 12-year project. And then uh, I worked in it its second year as, uh, again, an intern. And then its third year, I got paid, and that was very cool. And so in, the, uh, in Boyhood, I actually have a credit, a screen credit, which very excited about. 
So I'm, I'm pretty sure that means I was nominated for an Oscar. And, so, <laughs> and I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it until somebody tells me not to. Um, uh, yeah, so that was really, that was amazing. And what's really cool about the boyhood story in particular, because that was, it still, it felt really uh, interesting and different than everything else that was happening. And even for Rick, it felt like, oh, wow, this is like a different thing even for him. And when I got to AMC, I learned that AMC was the parent company, or AMC's parent company was also the parent company of IFC. And IFC was the one who was cutting all the checks for Boyhood. Mm -hmm. So I, even though I had taken, a, taken some gap years, but I had gotten back to working for the same person kind of roundabout way to where Boyhood uh, was originated. And even when I first met the CEO of the company, uh, Josh Sapan, I said, uh, wow, so you're, you're the guy who was like cutting checks for 12 years on this, on a little movie and with a, with a cool concept. And he's like, yeah, why, why'd I do that? I was like, oh, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. Um, and, then, uh, and then I was really fortunate because I was at Sundance when it premiered there and I, was, uh, I had such a good time going and connecting with all the people who worked in the production of it in a very different capacity. I was an AMC TV executive who was attending Sundance to scout for talent that could be brought over to TV, and uh, and all of them were there because they were celebrating, you know, this film being done. And like, how'd you get in? What did you do? I was like, no, I I kind of work here. So, yeah. Very cool. So I'm wondering if you would mind walking us through a project that you worked on and kind of telling us like what kinds of things you were doing. Maybe okay. some fun tales if they're, you know. Oh, goodness. If, if you feel comfortable with something like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or. Sure. Along the lines of that. Uh, well, um, hmm. well, the, uh, the Mad Men experience was really cool. I mean, obviously, that show is unbelievable, and, or at least I think it is. If you, you, maybe this room hasn't even seen Mad Men before, but you've heard yeah, of let's it. Actually, how many of you have seen Mad Men? Okay, and hopefully you all know that the full collection of Mad Men materials was just acquired by the Harry Ransom Center, right? There Which you is go. amazing. Scripts, dailies, production notes, all sorts of stuff which can be available once they finish cataloging okay, it well, in good the luck next year. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so yeah. So yeah, so Mad Men was interesting because it was AMC's first scripted project uh, after the Robert Duvall Western, and um, it was definitively like a massive risk and nobody knew what to make of it and um and we made the pilot and the pilot came in and we all looked at each other like whoa this is very different and uh there are some places in the script i'll speak for myself where i was like isn't this show supposed to be more funny like it's not <laughs> that funny there's no laughs and um they're like shut up it's great um <laughs> But but there was like a we had a sense that it was it was something special and um, we were uh, we we put it out into the world in the summer of 2007. Uh, it aired on a Thursday night opposite uh, a show called Burn Notice. How many of you have seen a show called Burn Notice? Okay, less hands. I'll note for those on the podcast, less hands. Uh, <laughs> Burnos was like a massive hit that like had so, a huge, huge rating, and we had a very, very small rating and great reviews, but nobody knew what who we were, or where we were, or anything, and because uh, we had no, all we could really do was 
drive people who are watching AMC movies uh, to Mad Men, which we did, but it, you know, it just wasn't there enough. But anyway, so, um, so first season ends, and if it weren't really for the support we got from the fashion industry, who was one of the first people to really glom on to Mad Men as being, uh, you know, to embrace it as an icon, um, and I remember at the end of the first season, we got a call from, or I didn't, but somebody in our New York offices got a call from Macy's, and they were already asking if we were going to do another season because they wanted to feature the, the show in their store windows, uh, you know, the fashion of the show. And that was, you know, a big deal. I mean, that was like, wow, somebody's like paying attention to this and they think we're, we're cool. Um, and so when we, when we kept going through the show, it became in the... So we made the pilot, we greenlit the series, the pilot we made in New York, we made the series in L.A. Um, there was, you know, uh, uh, Matt Weiner and the writers were, you know, we had uh, a, lot of, a lot of back and forth, and it was a really fruitful, uh, creative time. And then uh, by the time I took the show, though, in the third season, it, I was really given the job because there was, a, there was a certain amount of like, okay, this is yours, good luck with it. And you're promoted because you have no history with the show. And, or I hadn't been talking to Matt directly, so it was an easy way to go back. And we had a great relationship, and the show, um, you know, went great. Um, but there were, like, there were moments, as with any show, of, like, you know, there's, uh, you plan for a certain success when you negotiate for a show early on with the network. We say, we're going to pay you this much, and we're going to do, the show's going to cost this much. And by the time you actually, and we're going to do that for this many years, you're like, okay, great, that sounds good. Like, everybody's happy and we get going. And you never think like, oh, in this many years when we come back to this, the show's going to be really, really successful. And it may not, we may not have a business model that supports what the show is anymore. And, uh, and that's literally, uh, you know, what happened with the show, where it was like, oh, my gosh. In order to keep it, we're going to have to pay a lot for it. And so it took us a long time to get there. I don't know if you can talk a little bit about the standards and practices stuff. Oh, is that oh right. Because... Yeah, we can talk about that. Uh, I, and you can explain what standards and practices is. I was very intrigued by the what you were talking about because we talk about standards and practices a lot, which is like the censorship division. Yeah. Or... Well, censorship... Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's really standards and practices is a given for any commercial network because they are making sure that they are not going to be, number one, offensive to any of the sponsors that are sponsoring the show. If you've seen Mad Men and if you've seen the, I think it's the fifth season, uh, the Lane Price season, or maybe it's the sixth season, um, uh, you know, there's a certain incident that happens in a Jaguar, and it would be really bad if we were, if Jaguar was advertising on the show at that point. They were not. But the standards and practices would, you know, keeps... Uh, keeps it close and make sure that like nobody's you know we're not doing anything crazy but also they protect the the network from being sued uh, by anybody that's being liable or you know anything that's happening unfactually that they feel like you know they're going to be at risk for and then also it's like maintaining a certain rating uh, over the uh, over the brand you know when AMC or FX or Annie or TBS or TNT when they get these deals with the Comcast uh, or cable networks of the world or Spectrum now, um, they, uh, they basically guarantee that they're going to keep all content at a certain age range. 
and it was TV14. So we had a we had to maintain uh, a, a very strict content level that was at you know basically a PG13 movie rating. Well, that does mean the show isn't necessarily risque in and of itself, but it does have it charts a decade in which uh, you know the times changed and values changed, and so like. You know, so Roger in an orgy uh, is a part of the 60s, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And that's fair, you know. I mean, I, it, you know, as far as a creative concern, like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, we could show that. Uh, especially when it came to uh, uh, smoking drugs, uh, I think is how they call it these days. Smoking drugs. Um, for, uh, you know, there was a strict law or a strict rule S&P had where you weren't allowed to see anybody take a hit off of anything. So you could see them bring it up to their mouth, but you had to cut away until they were exhaling. So that infuriated everybody. I mean, it was a, it was a weird thing, but it was just a way of, like, we're not encouraging or glam uh, glamorizing the use of drugs. It was much more about, like, well, that's, uh, we're chronicling a, a moment, not necessarily like uh, making it cool. Um, so would different standards and practices where different networks have different guidelines? Yeah, for sure. Because like if we had turned on the shield on FX, we would have seen like, you know, some, some really some, some hardcore, you know, some, some definitely getting closer to NC-17 rating, I would say. Uh, we're always very jealous of what they could do on FX, um, who is still ad-supported. But I, I think that there's a, yeah, so every, every place is different. But, and also, like, that's HBO and the premium, uh, the subscription-based places would use that and use their ability right. to not have S&P as their strategic advantage. I mean, Game of Thrones is a great example of, like, you know, I don't know if they thought that show was going to be great or not or if what they thought it was going to be, but they definitely knew if they threw in enough, you know, skin, they're going to get some eyeballs. And uh, it turns out they were right. But, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, it also turned out to be a great show, too. But yeah. uh, So did you guys have much of a sense or how much of a sense in advance did you have of how the show was going to unfold and where it was going to go? Oh, man. Well, we had, like, some general parameters. I think it was season five, which was my favorite season, which was... Um, Kind of the, it was uh, Matt basically started out the season by saying, "This season is no it's season six. See, this season is going to be all about success. We are going to see they were successful at the end of the last uh, season, and this season is going to be about the drama of what it's like to be successful. And so we would often get thematic statements like that that we could orient a lot of the action around." And then we'd say, like, you know, if so, even if we knew or we'd say, um, you know, Don and I think that Don and um, uh, Betty are going to have an affair at some point in this season. It's like, okay, great. That's cool. And, you know, so we get a lot of, like, I mean, that's Mad Men's specific case because it's so, we had so much trust and we had so much love for that show that we were like, yes, like, that sounds great. Like, let's do it. I often, I, I often felt like, even though I was meant to be giving notes, I often felt like I was the first blogger about it. I was like, Matt, this is great. Like, you're so, it was like, man, I need to stop, like, I just <laughs> like, evaluate what I'm doing. But, um, 
But also, you know, not every show is like that. I mean, I would say that, um, you know, that show Hell on Wheels, I think, is a good example of a show that you know, didn't have nearly the, as high a notoriety. I mean, if I may, who in this room has seen Hell on Wheels before? Yes, even less than burn notice. This is, <laughs> it's not, uh, no good days here. But the, so Hell on Wheels, not really meant for the people in this room. I mean, it's much more aimed at an older demographic. But the idea behind Helen Wheels was, uh, you know, that we wanted to have a character drama set in the West. And like I said before, it was about, we initially thought it was about revenge, and then we were trying to position it outside of revenge. So if at the end of the first season, if he doesn't get his revenge, or if he does get his revenge, what does that mean for the character? You know, what is that? And that question was a heavy question. It's one that we, as development executives, like really agonized like, does Cullen Bohannon, who is the, the hero of Helen Wheels, does he have enough agency? You know, does he have enough of, a, of enough stakes? Do we care about him enough? Is, um, are the people, the supporting cast in the show, um, are they talking about and, and filtering into his life in the right way? I mean, those are like the basic questions of, you know, the development executive, uh, or at least for that one, and, you know, and, and not like Mad Men, we, you know, we, they would come to us and tell us what they wanted to do a season, and we're like, nope, that doesn't, we don't like that. And then we would call them all and do it in a diplomatic way, but we were just kind of like, hey, listen, we think that we need to go further in making Cullen a really three-dimensional character. And that's like a show that, you know, I think really by the third season, and definitely by the fourth season, really found its groove as being speaking to a, a character arc as opposed to just being like, you know, a cool uh, revenge tale in the Old West. Those are good examples. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit to talk about advice for students and sort oh, okay. of sure. where things are going from your perspective. You said that you you advise TVs where it where it's at where it's more at. than film, um, and I'm wondering if you can just give the students' advice of the types of careers that you see really growing or the types of areas of the industry that you see growing? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I would say, like, I think the, um, as uh, there's, a, there's a whole world of my type of channels out there. There's uh, YouTube Red, there's Full Screen, there's um, uh, Vimeo is doing original content, Facebook is getting into original content. You know, you have even some, like, non-players who develop TV shows, like uh, places like uh, style brands, like Refinery29, which is, uh, you know, doing original stuff. So, I mean, like, there's a lot of places out there that are trying to repeat the success that we had with Mad Men, and the success being take a no-name, anonymous cable channel channel 447 on your cable box, you know, and make it a place that you're going to go to, make it a destination by building or bringing in distinctive programming. So everybody's taking a page out of that. Or what Netflix did for House of Cards. They said, you know what, House of Cards is going to be our prestige play, and that's what's going to get people understanding that they need to come to us to watch House of Cards. I think Orange is the New Black to a certain degree, too. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of us doing original things, but not nearly, even at my place right now, I would say 
Um, I can spend some money, but I can't spend Netflix money, and I can't spend Amazon money. I can't even spend AMC money necessarily. But so I am oriented towards um, uh, working with people who are, you know, emerging for the most part. I mean, I would say like not uh, there's there's kind of like in my two brands, Sundance Now and Shutter. I do um, kind of more traditional cable broadcasting on both of them, where I'll develop a hour-long um, uh, uh, genre-oriented drama on Shutter that's the same as it would be for AMC, and I hear the same pitches they do. Uh, and then on Sundance Now, I'll develop a half-hour uh, dramedy, and I hear the same pitches that those who do dramedies hear. Uh, but then I do um, short-form series on Shutter, which is, means like, eight, ten-minute episodes of something, um, like High Maintenance was on Vimeo. Like, I would do that on Shudder or Sundance now. Um, I, I listen to a ton of podcasts because I am interested in trying to, you know, maybe one of these podcasts can make a really cool short-form series, and, or maybe I just make a podcast. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I basically, it, it's, it's kind of fun because, you know, for us that are kind of reinventing how you're going to watch stuff and who's going to come and watch stuff, you ultimately like take a lot of risks on a lot of weirdo stuff. And so I think, you know, as advice for you guys, I'd say like, you know, do, if you're a writer director, you know, go and do the thing you want to do, even if it's weirdo and it doesn't feel like, you know, it's like, Oh, but this will never make any money. It's like, yeah, like nothing ever is ever going to make any money. So just do the thing you like to do. And chances are you'll find somebody who wants to like, trust you to go do something else or you'll at least get a uh, uh, find people to work with you know the uh, my favorite person well I have a lot of favorite people but one of the, my most favorite people that uh, I've met I met off of I watched his Kickstarter video and I just was like holy shit this guy's really good and I emailed him out of the cold and then we had multiple projects together we've never actually seen anything come to life but we've done a lot and still is a guy who's on the rise and I think is amazing. And I think the notion right now is that even the, one of the chief curators at Sundance Now, the chief curator, is a guy named George Schmalz who comes from the world of Kickstarter. So he's like, hey, this Kickstarter video got funded or didn't get funded last year. Do you think it would make a cool series? And I watch it I say, yes, it could. And then we call him up and it's like, hey, we're doing original stuff. Come in with a pitch, and they do, and then we do it, or we don't do it. But so you said yeah. you were at uh, Sundance scouting for talent. Yeah. So do you go to a lot of festivals, or like where do you where do you go podcasts? You mentioned. Yeah. Like, what are the places that you look? Do people need representation? That sort of thing. Yeah. No. I mean, yes, but but not at least initially. You you just have to have the wherewithal to go and do something. Um, I mean, look. I think um, I use. I mean, I think I won't be the first person to tell you this. Like, there's a lot of really great aggregators out there who get really interesting stuff in front of people that matter. Uh, Vimeo Staff Picks, I think, is probably a better TV network than anything else out there at the moment. I mean, like, if you were just to watch their feed, you'd be like, wow, they, they got it all together. What, what show is this? What channel is this? Um, so I meet people a lot off of there. Um, uh, that's how I met um, uh, Keith Maitland, who did... Uh, Movie Tower, like that little short thing, was up on the staff picks, and uh, uh, and uh, my colleague Zach reached out to him, and we met him, and it was awesome. And then that movie was so good, and 
And we ended up doing a short together for uh, Sundance Now. So it was like really, it was fun. Um, so I think that there's like no shortage of uh, opportunities to uh, meet people. It's just like a question of like seeing what you can do and then, and then picking it up. I do go to festivals uh, at least two a year, uh, Sundance for Sundance Now, and then uh, Fantastic Fest for Shudder. Uh, and those are for sure uh, minor leagues. You know, you definitely meet with people, and that's a good place to go and network. I mean, the fact that um, Austin has two major film festivals here, I mean, three if you count Austin Film Festival, I mean, I think that that's like a big deal that I mean, everybody should be taking advantage of going and seeing and networking with people. Um, Volunteer. Who come all, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Volunteering is right. Yeah. Um, so one last substantive question, then one small question. Okay. For students, and then we'll open it to the audience. Uh, when students ask if, you should, if they should move to L.A. Oh, right. Austin, L.A., New yeah. York, what do you think? Like, what would your recommendation? Oh man, I, I mean, you told me that this was might be a question. I don't know. I don't know how to answer this. I mean, like, I think it's up to everybody. Like, it's it's up to you about whether you want to. I I would say Austin because of its, uh, you know, because the lack of um, uh, government infrastructure, i.e., tax credits here, it makes it a less desirable place for outside uh, companies to come and bring their production, which is just. A sad state, but it just is what it is, and it's it's a part of the world now. Um, so I think you're you're less likely to maintain. I don't know. Maybe there's enough production work that comes in that you can maintain a career here. Um, I, I I don't know. I mean, look, I moved to LA because I wanted. I felt like I could um, uh, get uh, a leg up, and I thought that I wanted to be a writer, and I knew that writers I would get in front of the right people there, and then I end up finding my way into another type of creative position. And it felt good, it still feels good. So I think that I haven't regretted moving to LA from Austin. Now that being said, you know, Austin's cooler for sure. And I mean, even New York is a really great place, but knowing uh, a lot of people who are in New York, I think that there's even less opportunities there than maybe there are in LA, but that's changing. Maybe Atlanta has the right set of opportunities, or maybe it's Albuquerque. I don't know. I mean, I think it's just about going where you feel like you can get your stuff done and you feel comfortable. Chattanooga, I hear, is really cool. I don't know. <laughs> Great. Okay. And my small question is, what are you watching these oh. days? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, so this is another shameless plug. I mean, it's so unfair. <laughs> but, uh, but, like, yeah, so we, on Sundance Now, we have this show called The Bureau, and it is the best spy show that's ever been made, period, in my opinion, okay? The show, it's in French, which is why you never heard it, heard about it, but it is so good. And uh, I think, especially for people who are like, like me, who are constantly craving like new things and new storylines that I don't anticipate, um, I find myself gravitating towards foreign language uh, stuff often because it's unexpected. Um, and... Uh, so the Bureau, um, we have season three coming out in June, and so I've been re-watching seasons one and two, and I've been just loving it. I mean, so that's the plug, which I would, guys, the Bureau's the best spy show <laughs> ever. Anyway, uh, and, then, uh, and then, you know, on another network, um, I, um, uh, I really like the tone and the humor of the show on Amazon called The Patriot. I think it's really fun, and 
cool and not like nothing else. And it's not necessarily, uh, I love the streaming platforms because they give a chance for shows that would never survive on commercially, uh, you know, the commercial necessities mm -hmm. of linear broadcasters. And that show is definitely one of them, but it is, it, it's like perfect for me because I'm like, I can just watch one and be really excited and come back and watch another. And yeah. Anyway. Thank you. Now, uh, Tim is waiting anxiously with the microphone to run oh. around and ha take questions, and we have one up here, so let's go. Thank you for coming. Um, in regards to the pitch, um, you made it sound like it's very traditional and type, uh, kind of a face-to-face -face affair. Are there ever um, visual aids, or are they still always in person? Do you see execs getting sent videos similar to Kickstarter-type things? Uh, yeah, the pitching process is is tried and true, and it'll always be a certain level. For a certain level, it's always going to be the same. I mean, uh, that being said, I mean, I've bought things internationally that where we only talk through Google Hangouts, you know, and so there's a face-to-face -face via um, or Skype or whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, the pitch in general is about going into a room, you know, shaking the hand of the person across from you, demonstrating your vision for it, getting them fired up for it, and then, like, convincing them that you're going to be a great partner so that by year seven of, of your mutual success, everybody's still going to love each other and still want to do this stuff together. So, um, so yeah, the pitch is, is very much a formal sitting across from the table process. I think that there's more opportunities with more places like myself who are open to people in other places. Uh, but I would say 90% of the time it's... Things are bought by virtue of being face to face. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's on. Yep. Oh, hi. <laughs> um, so, when you talk about making creative decisions, whether it's like in an executive or a producer kind of position, where does that come from? Like, is it your like intuition and all the experience, or what are you relying on, like in trusting <laughs> when you make those kinds of decisions? Oh man, that is like a good question because it's like the worst answer, which is like <laughs> you just kind of think that. I mean, there's not like, there, I mean, this is like the, this is the rub. And this is what drives, uh, you know, the writer, creator, producers, directors crazy is that it's just somebody's opinion, yeah. you know? And that's like the whole creative industry is just somebody's opinion. But, you know, I work at the Sunday Now. So if you want to do a Sunday Now show, then we got to work, find a way to work together and we have to find a way for us to trust each other enough to have that vision. So, I mean, I think that that's where, like, relationships come in as much as anything. And, but, yeah, I mean, it, I, when I started um, at AMC, I had seen a lot of TV and I'd seen a lot of movies. And it was very helpful for me to have that reservoir of watching, having watched things to know, like, yeah, but isn't that kind of like this? Like, and that's not that good. It's like, yeah, you're right, it's not. You know, when I started at Shudder, I had a, thankfully, I've seen a lot of, uh, when I was in school, Alamo used to do a thing called Something Weird Wednesdays, where at midnight, they would show a terrible movie, uh, or just a weird movie, at midnight, and it was no admission. You'd just go in, and you would buy beer if you wanted, or whatever, and I did that every single week. And so I have a deep reservoir of <laughs> terrible movies. Uh, that I can call upon at any moment, but 
there's there's a lot of like there's a lot of great things that come from watching a lot of terrible movies or a lot of things because it forces you to think about it in a critical way. Like, why is this movie terrible? Well, it's called Sinful Dwarf, and that's maybe <laughs> maybe it's in the title. I don't know. <laughs> but could our dwarf scary? Yeah. And uh, is there a way to make a horror movie about uh, a dwarf that terrorizes young women? Yeah, I guess there is. You know, like. How would I do it differently? I'm not d d doing that. <laughs> it's an example. Awesome, thank yeah. you. Hello. Is this okay? It was on. Um, I was wondering what you sort of just do in like your day to day. Like, if you're not specifically maybe like taking meetings or pitches, like you go to the office probably grab a coffee and then like what what's what's your typical day like yeah um i uh so i, I it, it's uh it's, it's super unglamorous i have <laughs> basically um at least six meetings every day of various lengths and at least four of those are regarding a new piece of business and one of those is probably an internal meeting of some sort where i'm coordinating with marketing to make sure that you know, we have uh, Shutter's first original is at the Overlook Film Festival tomorrow, and um, I'm just making sure that they have all the materials or they're saying the right thing, and um, and that Rodney Asher, the director, is well taken care of, and he's not going to be, you know, whatever. Um, uh, and then, like, probably another half hour devoted to, or another meeting, probably not a half hour, devoted to something that I'm currently doing that's, you know, that there's some issue about for some reason. But mostly it's about new business coming in and about siphoning through that and seeing what's, what's right or not. And then taking phone calls otherwise and getting scripts and scheduling new meetings and uh, meeting with people just generally um, who, you know, I want to build a relationship with that gets, at some point, get something from. So... So I was I was wondering how does the path to and competition for a media industry executive position compare to that of like the more visible positions like directors and writers? Uh, is your just like what's the path to it? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the uh, yeah the path to like writing uh, writing directing to me is like actually doing it right. You go and write and direct, and or you go and produce your buddy's movie, and suddenly you know you've you've done it enough times where and you've done it gradual increases in quality and budget and suddenly uh you know you're a de la romanski and you have moonlight you know and that's great um uh i think that uh yeah creative executives don't necessarily have that ability but i mean it's the job is like half networking so basically all all you do is you go in and you start to network your way into figuring out who are the places that do that? What aligns with your taste? And then you figure out how to intern with them. You figure out how to, you know, um, read for them. You, you figure out how to, you know, be a super fan for them. You figure out how to work with a management company that has a client on for them. You know, I think that those executive roles and, and managements and agents kind of count in the same way, even though they're slightly different or well, a lot different, but at least they are of the same ilk. I would say, like, I 
you know, there's many more agents and managers and producers I talk to on a regular basis than writer-director. Um, uh, and that's just by virtue of getting more writer-directors in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's about going out and, and networking. And those jobs do not, I mean, unless maybe Rooster Teeth has some sort of, I don't actually know, but maybe they have a presence here. But the, um, but yeah, there's not very many creative executive jobs that are outside of LA or New York. Thanks, thanks. Um, two questions. One is, um, in the digital distribution only, you know, channels and networks, um, yes. what, what is success? So what is, what the, the owners, what are they thinking about in terms of, uh, in a subscription model? Yeah. How big do you have to grow? How fast to justify, you know, the, for it to stay in business in five or ten years? And similarly for ad-driven ad uh, models. And then, alternate, my second question is, would you still be sitting here doing this if you, at CAA, you weren't at the cable desk uh, <laughs> of an agent? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, uh, I, I think I would probably uh, be either here or, you know, somewhere like here because I think that when I was a producer, I kind of noticed that no one was buying the crazy stuff I was bringing in. So I was like, oh, uh, so I got to get back on the buying side because that means that I can control the, the crazy you know, and people have to conform to me as opposed to the other way around. So, yeah, I think I would figure that out. Um, you know, we're in the subscription business. I mean, that's why I plug it at the beginning. Like, every subscription counts. You know, we have a churn rate that I see every day. You know, I know exactly. We have metrics that let me know how many minutes people are watching of what. Like, I, I know what's working and what's not. So, success for us looks like gaining subscriptions. Um, and, which is different because... We thankfully have the pockets of AMC Networks, which has AMC, IFC, uh, uh, BBC America, Sundance TV, We Women's Entertainment, uh, IFC Entertainment, the distribution model. You know, all th they're invested in us, so they're allowing us to operate at a deficit um, until we get up to speed, which, I mean, we're closing in on. So... Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's about building building it until we're we're faking it until we're making it basically, <laughs> you know. And then the cable television is both uh, ad revenue and then uh, carriage revenue, so revenue from the the spectrums of the world to carry the AMC suite of networks, and then the revenue from the BMWs of the world to place their ads there. And that's why cable blew up is because I realized I could. Get both of those. You know that. That's good. Yeah. On the digital side, if it's ad-driven, is it different? There's no... Oh, well, you know, the Hulu... I don't know how their business works. I don't get that. <laughs> I don't, like... I don't get how I have to subscribe and I still have to watch commercials. Like, what's that? You know? I don't know what that model... Is. I think that that has something to do with... The, if I had to guess, I would say that has something to do with that they're owned by uh, ad... Traditionally ad-driven uh, networks that don't want to erode relationships by owning an SVOD-only place like Hulu. So I have a feeling it's more about leveraging current relationships than it is about uh, it being a necessary part of their model. I don't know. But then again, I don't know how many people watched The Path. I don't know if that was like, which is probably their biggest hit. I don't know if that was a huge thing or if it was just an okay thing. So It'll be interesting with Handmaid's Tale. I think that that, that, that show's going to do great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Hulu's definitely, they have, they have some great people working there. They're going to yeah. figure that out. 
what should sure. the students in this room be taking while they're here? And, oh. you know, secondary for that, for you, if you could do it all over again here, what would you have liked to have done when you were here? Oh, man. didn't so, get a chance to do? My favorite classes were uh, Mr. Lewis's uh, producing class. That was very good. <laughs> That's great. Um, and, uh, and my TV, my history of television class. And then my American cultural studies class that was not in the RTF department. Um, I think all three of those, I would say, were like the right, uh, at least way for, me, for a development executive, I guess, to position themselves and understand what is there. Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't do anything different. It was all good. But the... Uh, <laughs> But I do think, like, having a good understanding of uh, the arts in general is, like, really, really valuable. And uh, the cultural uh, course, the American culture course, was great because it, it made me read, like, Studs Terkel books when I wouldn't have otherwise done that. And uh, I took a bunch of comparative literature classes because I was really into James Joyce for some dumb reason. You know, I mean, and, uh, I mean, he's great, but... That doesn't necessarily help me now, but at least it was, it got me used to reading and it got me used to like, like thinking about story. And I mean, I think story is the most important uh, piece of fundamental knowledge I could have um, in, in this role or other roles within the, the sphere. And I feel like at the end of the day, like the things that really force you to read it, think about it, reinterpret it, put it in your own words. And go back. You know, the producing class was awesome because it was like, go and make a project and then, like, pitch it. And you had to go and pitch it. And then, so it was, like, the first time that I was like, oh, what makes a good pitch? And that was, like, still I remember thinking about that stuff that I use every day right now. That's great. And as someone who teaches TV history, I thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. Um. Oh. Repeat. Um... What do we have to do to get execs to take risks? Like, if I'm in a room, what is the spark that they look for? I guess, what do I have to do to, to make them reach out and say, okay, maybe something different might make money? Or, mm. uh, Oh, well, that's a, that's a, that's a multi-layered question. Um, <laughs> I think, um, look, I think that your, your position to succeed when you walk into a room if you believe in it, if you could, if you have a really good idea of who it is that you're pitching to so that you are able to understand the point of view that they're coming to you from. So like, for instance, um, you know, I do have a lot of people who come in for Shudder and pitch, you know, um, um, that's not a good example. Um, <coughs> There's, there's a lot, there's, you know, if somebody's walking into um, Shudder and pitching a zombie show, let's say, okay, they're, they probably haven't thought, like, even though they're in the AMC Network suites and we're trying to, you know, build a name because The Walking Dead is the biggest show on AMC and the biggest show on television still, and it literally is what paid for Shudder in and of itself, right? I mean, that show's just bonkers. But that doesn't mean we're looking to do another zombie show. So, like, if you come in and you're pitching me a zombie show, you're probably, like, you know, haven't done enough deep thinking about, like, what it is that I'm probably looking for. Because I'm probably not going to want another zombie show, let alone one that I hope would be better than all the ones that come before it, 
you know, I wouldn't want to do that. So it's like I want to find new things. Um, so it's like doing your homework on who you're meeting with, trying to, um, you having a really, I, I think also like, yeah, like to your question earlier about visual aids and stuff like that. I think at the lower level, the more things that you have that you can say like, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Here's, this is what I did before. This is how much it costs. With you, we can do it for this. And I mean, the more things you have to show for yourself is the better. So I think it's just, you have to make people feel like you're talking on the same level and then you have to make them feel safe with you as a creative person. Also, I mean, like, let's not forget that all of these things are businesses. So, like, you know, running a show or, you know, doing even, like, um, if you're writing and directing a short-form series for me, you know, you're going to have to, like, give me a budget, you know, before we green light it. You're going to have to, like, know how to make sure that we're, you know, just in case we end up having to go sag new media contract, how we're going to allocate those residuals just in case it happens. So, yeah, I mean, there's things that fundamental knowledge that you have to be, come to the table with. And I think that making sure you have all those things is what gives the person you're pitching to the trust. Well, I think that that actually is a very good question to conclude on. Oh, okay, good. Um, okay. <laughs> you made it. Uh, no, thank you so much. This was terrific, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information or to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu mic. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with the assistance of Tim Piper and Laura Felshow, our videographer, Eric Apollo, and the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. We hope you can join us next time for another media industry conversation. Get along, get along, get along.